For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do, that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Father God, as we seek to hear and to listen to your word, we pray that you would open our ears, open our eyes, that we could hear what it is that you have for us and see what it is that you have for us in your word. And I ask that you would bless the words of my mouth as I preach. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope everyone had a chance to enjoy the beautiful weather. It seemed like all of Dallas was at White Rock Lake today, as, myself, as I myself was, uh, because it's been so gloomy the last few days. We had a chance to enjoy the sunshine, sunshine, so I hope you took advantage of coming to church at night and acted like a heathen in the morning and you know, walked outside and all that sort of thing. Uh, we are in the season of Lent. This is the second Sunday in Lent, and uh, we didn't do this prayer today. Uh, we typically do it. The, we call it the Colic for Purity. And it's a prayer that I've been thinking a lot about in my own uh, thought about Lent and what it is. And that prayer is, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. In some ways, that's the whole process of Lent in one prayer. Um, That we are open before God. Uh, whether we want him to search the deepest places of us or not, he does. He knows the depths of us. He knows um, our deepest desires. Even if those things are a secret to us, he knows those things. And what Lent is, is a season where we set aside time, set aside 40 days for self-examination, where we don't just pray, hey, God, you know those things. We pray, God, hey, show me those things in myself. Show me the depths of my desires. Show me what really motivates me. Show me what I'm really about, what I value. That's why we put things off during Lent. That's why we maybe fast things. That's maybe why we take on certain disciplines. As Jay said last week, those create opportunity to turn the volume down on our lives so we can hear God speak 
into that space within us where we're asking that question, hey, God, what really motivates me? So giving up something is not for the sake of giving up something. Taking on something is not for the sake of taking it on. It's for the sake of, as Jay said, creating that space to where God can speak to us. That prayer may be scary to you, actually. It may not actually be a blessing to say those things that we are exposed in some way before God because it all depends on whether or not we trust him. Do we trust this one who knows the depths of us? And that's what this passage in Romans is about today. It's a passage about trust. It's a passage about faith, which means it's a passage about trust. And what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 4 is he's retelling a portion of the story of Israel in light of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul is a good Jew, someone raised uh, with these stories, someone who had internalized these stories more than anyone else of his generation, trained to the, in the best schools and the best ways to understand the story of Israel, encounters the living Christ on the road to Damascus, and he has to rethink, re-narrate everything he's ever known about what it means uh, to be in relationship with God. But as a good Jew, he's unwilling to throw those things away. He's not just saying, hey, this new thing's happened. All of that doesn't matter anymore. He wants to retell that story, re-narrate that story in light of what God has accomplished in Christ. And what he does here in Romans chapter 4 is he retells the story of Abraham and he pulls out things that were always there, things that were always sitting there in the story of Genesis pointing forward to who Christ was and what God would do in him. And what he says about Abraham is that Abraham was a person of faith. He was a person of trust. And because he was a person of faith and because he was a person of trust and because he believed God, he became the father of all those who have faith. So we're going to talk about faith tonight. We're going to talk about trust. Um, in light of Lent, can we trust this one who knows the depths of us? Can we trust him to be kind? Can we trust him to be merciful, to be tender with those places in us that maybe we're not so keen to let go of or to turn over to him? So the first thing that we see in this passage, and if you have your bulletin or your Bible, you can look at this. In verse uh, 16, Romans 4, it says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. The promise may rest on grace. It is according to faith, but the promise rests on grace. There's a lot of big Bible theological words in this passage. Law, wrath, promise, faith, righteousness, resurrection. All of that stuff is there. But in those three little words, Paul points us to what it's all built on. It's all built on grace. The promise rests on grace. What God promises to Abraham is an overflow of his gracious character. The collect for the second Sunday in Lent that we just prayed it says, O oh God, whose glory it is always to have mercy. The nature of that prayer says that it is of God's essence, of who he is to be merciful, to be gracious. So when God comes to Abraham and calls him and says, I will make you a father of many nations, he's not responding to something in Abraham. Abraham wasn't looking for God. God shows up in his grace 
and promises Abraham. It rests on grace. I wrote about this in the weekly newsletter, and I'm sure you all read it, so this will just be a recap. But for those of you who may not have, um, one of the things I like about living in Dallas is you get to see really amazing buildings sort of rise out of nowhere. And there's this building over by All Saints Dallas and Oakland that, that was being built. And they tore down something to make way for the new thing. But the first thing that they did was they dug this unbelievably deep pit. And if you've seen a building go up in that first stage, there's this, this huge, it's almost like a crater. And they do all of this dirt work, and it seems to take forever before they actually start building anything. But that substructure is key. Anything that they build on top of that is completely dependent on it. It rests on that. And that's what grace is. Grace is the substructure of everything else that God builds in our lives. His promises, our faithful response to that, our righteousness in him, all the other big theological words that are in this passage rest on that substructure of grace. Before we ever can talk about faith, we have to talk about grace, that it is his glory to have mercy, that he is kind, that he is the one who promises and the one who fulfills the promises. So in light of that, we can ask the question, well, what, what is faith? What it, if Abraham had this faith and it was counted to him as righteousness and he's the father of all those who have faith, well, what is it? Sometimes we can talk about faith and it almost seems magical. And it's this thing that I do and then God responds to it. But the way that Paul's talking about it here, it's not magic. And Paul isn't giving just an exhortation for us to believe a little bit more, to try harder. That's not what he's saying about faith. Look at verses 20 through 22. Speaking of Abraham, Paul says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 21 tells us a lot about the nature of faith. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. If faith can sometimes seem like a magic word or belief can sometimes seem like a magic word, it's, I think it's helpful to think about faith as trust. We trust that God is who he says he is. That's the nature of any true relationship. We trust those who are trustworthy. We have faith in those who are faithful. John Stott says that faith is reasonable to the extent that you put trust in someone who is trustworthy. It's unreasonable to put trust in someone who's not trustworthy. So it, this happens every day in our lives. Most of us, when we go to a car mechanic, have no idea what they're talking about. And they tell us things that need to happen to our car. And we can choose to trust them or not trust them. And hopefully you have a good car mechanic who over a long period of time has shown themselves to be trustworthy. They say, well, you can do this, but you can wait three months for that. And really, this isn't necessary now, but maybe you can spend some money on this. And that car mechanic shows themselves to be trustworthy. Well, it's reasonable to put your trust in them 
it's reasonable to hand them money for the things that they see that your car needs, even if you have no idea what they're actually doing under the hood or what they do when they lift it up on the lift. Abraham is not believing in a blind way. He's trusting God because he believes God to be trustworthy, and he finds that God is trustworthy himself. So as we think about what faith is, it's, it's a lot of different things, but at its base, it's trust. It's trusting that God is who he says he is. It's trusting that he is trustworthy. And it says that when Abraham responded in faith, that God counted it to him as righteousness. And that's one of the great themes of the book of Romans, that God responds favorably to faith. And I think it's important to ask, why does God care about faith? Why is it that faith moves the heart of God? Later in Romans, Paul will say, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why is it that faith pleases God? And I actually don't think it's that mysterious. Again, it's back to the nature of relationship itself. Faith is almost the currency of any relationship. If someone doesn't trust me, it's hard for me to say that I'm actually in relationship with them. If we don't trust God, it's hard to say that we're in relationship with him. When a relationship loses trust, that is absolute devastation to that that relationship. When trust is betrayed in a relationship, it is sometimes impossible to recover. That relationship is never the same after that. And sometimes there can be reconciliation, and praise God that there often is. But trust is the currency of relationship. Faith is the currency of relationship. It's not that God just said, I need something to have these humans do to show that they really want to be in relationship with me. I know I'll invent something called faith. And if they have faith, then I'll be in relationship with them. Well, then we're back to magic, that there's this thing that we have to do to make God turn favorably towards us. But that's not what Paul is saying at all. That's not what the New Testament is saying all about the nature of faith. It's saying God sends his son so that we might be in relationship with him, and we respond and say, we want to be in relationship with you too. We respond with trust, with faithfulness. And think of the story of Sarah and Abraham themselves. It's not without its up and downs. It's not as if uh, he gets it perfectly right all of the time. On two occasions, he lies and says that his wife is actually his sister so that he can get himself out of a jam. On another occasion, because this promised child is not coming quick enough, they, like, his wife says, well, why don't you, marry, you know, make something happen with Hagar and let's see if that, that's what God meant. But it isn't what God meant. But God remains faithful in that. And that's what's important, is God's faithfulness, his trustworthiness is steadfast and remains even despite the ups and downs of Abraham's faith. Yes, Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, but he's not the hero of the passage. God's the hero of the passage. He's the one who is trustworthy. He's the one who is faithful and true. So the question is, well, how can we know? How can we know that God is trustworthy? So let's look at verse 17. This verse 
just kept hitting me like a ton of bricks all week. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Who is this God in whom we are supposed to place our trust? Who is this God in whom we are asked to have faith? It's the God who calls life out of death, who calls things into existence that don't even exist. And Abraham's life is a picture of that. Because what was the promise to Abraham? The promise is you will have an offspring, and from that offspring you will be a blessing to all nations, and your, the generations that will follow you will fill the sky as the stars fill the night. That's the promise. But what were the chances of that happening in Abraham's life? Well, Paul puts it in pretty stark terms. Is Abraham going to have a child on his own with Sarah? If God doesn't intervene, if God doesn't call life out of death, not likely, because what Paul says is he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Um, The ESV translators are actually being nice to Abraham here. Paul says his body was already dead. It was already dead. He's nice to, the translators are nice to Sarah too, because it says that he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. You'll see a little footnote if you have the Bible there. That just means dead too. Abraham was already dead. Her womb was dead. There is nothing happening there. He's 100 years old. This is why when the angel shows up and says, hey, by this time next year you're going to have a son, they just crack up laughing. Sarah and Abraham are just rolling with laughter. Why? Because I'm already basically dead and Her womb is definitely dead. This is not happening. It is, though, if God is the one who calls life out of death. If God is the one who calls something into existence that does not exist. Life out of death, something out of nothing. So we see that the story of Abraham is a story about Jesus because it's a story about resurrection. And that's Paul's point in this passage. His point in this passage is that God creates life where there's death. And that God creates something where there is nothing. And this picture of this couple who are dead, but life comes out of it. That's a resurrection story. What God did for Abraham, he would do in an even greater way in Jesus and what he promises to us. And that's the basis of our trust in him. That's the basis of our faith in him. The good news that, in the, that Jesus has been delivered over to death and has been raised up from life. And that's exactly what Paul does in this passage. He pivots from the story of Abraham to us. And he says in verse 23, the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone but for ours also. Those words that the just shall live by faith, that when we have faith, when we trust God, that it is counted to us as righteousness, those words are for us. It will be counted to us who believe in him. Believe in him who what? Who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. 
the, that's the logic of resurrection. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, God is trustworthy. Because he brings life out of death, God is trustworthy. Because he calls something out of nothing, God is trustworthy. Verse 25, Jesus who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Delivered up for our sin. God deals with the broken relationship between himself and humanity and delivering up his son to the cross. The journey towards Lent is the journey towards the cross, through the cross to the other side of resurrection. But as Jesus made clear in the gospel reading, he doesn't just get to skip to the end of resurrection. He has to go through the cross, and he tells his disciples they have to go through it too. See, the promise for us that there's life out of death means that we have to put certain things to death. We have to die to ourselves, believing that he can bring life out of death, that he can bring something out of nothing. So our ultimate trust is in a God who brings life out of death. Our ultimate trust is in the resurrecting God. And I can't think of anything right now in my own life or in this culture that we live in that we need more than resurrecting life for God to call life out of death, for God to call something out of nothing. We need that so badly right now. But the season of Lent is a reminder that it has to start right here. Before it can start out there, it has to start right here. We have to come to terms with those places in us that are dead. We have to come to terms with those places where we need God to breathe his life into it. It reminds me of what Jesus says about the nature of judging others. He says, first remove the plank from your own eye before you ever talk about the speck in your neighbor's eye. Lent is a season where we ask God to show us the planks in our eye. Ask God to remove the planks in our eyes so that we can see clearly, so that we can say, we, like Abraham, have experienced resurrection life. We've experienced God calling something out of nothing because he's done it in my own heart. There were dead things in my heart that God brought to life. That's the gospel in a line. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, raised so that we might have relationship with God, right standing before him, so that we might be called like Abraham, a child of faith. So that brings us back to that beginning prayer. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. If we trust that he is who he says he is, that's not a scary prayer. That's a wonderful prayer. And it's a wonderful invitation for him to come and look inside of us and show us those places in us that are dead, that need to be resurrected. If it's true, like we prayed, that God's glory is to always have mercy, then we can trust him. We can trust him with those wounded places in us, with those broken places with us, those dark places in us. And if all of this rests on the substructure of grace, we can trust him. We can trust him to be tender with us, merciful with us. We can trust him to bring life out of death. 
So I want us to all stand together. I'm just going to pray for us. And in light of God's mercy, in light of the promise of resurrection life, I simply want to pray for us to hear from him. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's not just a story, but that we too, like Abraham, can experience you calling life out of death, something out of nothing. Holy Spirit, now I pray that you would come and in the quietness of our own hearts, speak to us. Show us, Lord, those places that are dead. Show us, Lord, those places that are dark that need your light. Lord, I pray your blessing upon all these who are here. That even now and in, and in this season of Lent, that we would hear from you. That you would take us deeper into relationship with you. That we would trust you more and more. That we would have faith. And Lord, I pray that as a community, we could be a community of mercy, a community of grace, where we experience the healing of resurrection. And we ask this in the name of your Son, who was delivered over to death, but raised for our justification. Amen.